Do you like scary movies? Do you like scary movies called Scream? What's your favorite scary movie called Scream? There's like a bunch of them. It gets really confusing. Yep, I'll hold. Hello, pod. While Ghostface is holding, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest Empire Podcast spoiler special. This one is dedicated to Scream, which is, of course, not to be confused with Scream. This is a fifth movie in the Scream franchise, not the first movie in the Scream franchise. It's all very, very confusing indeed. But don't worry, we're here to hold your hand and track you through it over the next hour or so. And by we, of course, I mean me and my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, at least before they get gutted like a fish by Ghostface, we're joined by Helen O'Hara. Hello. Ben Travis. Hello. And Mike Munzer, a man who knows a thing or two about scary films and scary Ghostface films as the co-host of the Hello Sydney podcast. Hi, Mike. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm always up for some more Scream chat. Yeah, you're not sick of it? You must be sick well, of it by now. People might be sick of hearing me talk about Scream, maybe. But no, I, I I, can never get tired of it. I love it. All right. Excellent. That's good. That's good stuff. Because if you were sick of it, this would be a really, really short podcast. Anyway, <laughs> whilst we let Mike and Helen and Ben recuperate for, for a second, we're going to hear from the men who made this movie. This is the first Scream film not to be directed by Wes Craven. Of course, the late lamented Wes Craven, who passed away a few years ago. It is directed instead by two of the members of the filmmaking collective known as Radio Silence, Matt Bettinelli-Olpen and Tyler Gillette, who of course made the wonderful Ready or Not a couple of years ago. Uh, ben here, Ben Travis, for It Is He, spoke to them on Zoom the other week. And um, yeah, good time was had by all, Ben. Yes, good stuff. Very good stuff. We got into all kinds of spoilery things. We talked about Ryan Johnson. We talked about all the killings, uh, all the reveals at the end, and also about the pets that you can see on camera. Well, I could see on camera during the interview. Sadly, yes. you will not be able to see them, but you can imagine a cat and a very fluffy dog. Yes. So here we go. Here we are. Matt bettinelli Open, Tyler Gillette, and a cat and a very fluffy dog. Do please enjoy. So I'm thrilled to welcome to the Empire Spoiler Special podcast, the directors of Scream, Brackets 2022, Matt Bettinelli-Olpin and Tyler Gillett. The film has done it incredibly well. You must be uh, having the time of your lives right now. How is everything going? Great. <laughs> we're thrilled yeah. with the response. We're so happy it's out in the world. Yeah, it's you must been really be. wonderful watching people, you know, really connect to it. I mean, the, the film is an absolute blast. I've seen it twice now. Uh, seeing it once, getting all the all the shocks, all the scares, the second time around, uh, getting to see how you did it all. So I'm fascinated to dig into all of the the big questions. The first of which is, well, I was going to say, uh, I'm going to hold my first question because Matt, your cat has just walked into <laughs> yeah, frame. Sorry, Tell me apologies. about this cat. <laughs> this, is, this is one of my two cats. This is Reggie. I know this is mm -hmm. what everyone tuned in for. Uh, <laughs> mine, mine has been behind me in a podcast, <laughs> my dog, this entire time. This lump of this lump of flesh on the couch. Oh, amazing. And he's amazing. just decided to lay down on me. So we'll have another. <laughs> you may get pet updates through the course of this interview. But, yes, uh, please no, my... send cat videos. I love cat videos. My my opening question is, how do you guys really feel about the Babadook? Love it. Yeah, fantastic. Huge fans. Huge fans. I would say that we are fans of every movie referenced in this in this movie. And and that is one of the most fun things about well, any scream movie, but I think, you know, this one in particular, I, I it's it is um 
it's the, these movies are such a celebration of the genre and such a celebration of of just movies at large and so anything anything referenced anything poked fun at it's all in good fun and and we are just so we're such huge fans of of movies in general and and it's really fun to get to work in a to get to work on a project that gets to call all of that stuff out and and have a real conversation about the culture of of movie making yeah it is an amazing meditation on motherhood and grief like no no <laughs> exactly, lies were yes. told it's a fact it really is. yeah <laughs> it's a very succinct like kind of perfect description of what that movie is <laughs> when i saw i saw the movie with the with a crowd this weekend um and the, the jenna's line at the end about the babadook i mean it killed everybody was like loved it <laughs> and it was a thing that was really it was really rewarding for us for me because we had been talking so much about is that like little joke that we planted on page three or you know in the first couple minutes of the movie is that gonna really hit at the end because we loved it i mean it's like one of our favorite parts of the movie and to see a crowd react to it we were like oh great because like, like what tyler was saying is this isn't a takedown of any of those things. This is a like, listen, we're all part of this great big community. How, how wonderful, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I love the Babadook as much as anyone and the witch and all those films, but there is a joy to, to seeing Scream back on the big screen, what, 10, 11 years maybe since Scream 4. Um, and seeing those old guys come back as well, seeing those legacy characters return. But we, if we're going to talk about the big stuff, you guys killed Dewey. <laughs> At what point did you know you were going to do that? Was he always the legacy character who was going to die if you were like, we should probably kill one of them, as you say, to make it have real stakes, to make it count this time? You know, it was in the script that we read and it never really changed. I mean, it was, it, it, it was the part of the script that we got to when we first read it and all kind of turned to each other and had that moment of like, oh, can I cut curse on this? You can swear as much as you like. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we were like, oh, fuck, we're killing Dewey. That's, I, ah. We're playing for keeps. Yeah, this is not messing around. And then our experience reading it, which is hopefully the experience people have watching it, is that then all of a sudden, the emotional dial on the movie just gets turned up. And the the connection and the kind of, just like, everything gets heightened. And you really realize, oh, shit, this is a part of that whole lineage. And this movie is not fucking around. and. And there was, I also thought one of the great things that Guy and Jamie set up by putting it in the middle of the movie right after a gigantic set piece with the Hicks is that you really don't see it coming in terms of, you're not expecting that kind of major, major event in that area of the script. Like back to back, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with, you know, one of the most beloved characters of the entire franchise. And, it, it, you know, that's not to say that it wasn't hard emotionally, it wasn't hard to actually do it, it was very, I mean, we talked about it a lot, but I think at the end of the day, there was just, you know, it, it felt like it had to happen. Yeah, and I did... think it, for us, it was just this idea that, you know, the screen movies are at their best when they're not playing precious with anything, right? Yeah. And, and I think for us, it just was like, ugh, it's gotta, we have to, like you said, it, we ha it has to have teeth, it has to have stakes, and and you know and and it wouldn't it wouldn't be a screen movie if it didn't make you uncomfortable at times with the choices with the places that it was willing to go and uh, i'm intrigued how did david Arquette react to to that moment when when did you tell him uh, or when did he find out hey you're going to die in this one um cuz he's fantastic in the film when when Dewey first pops up he breaks your heart but then he yeah. he makes you laugh 
And then he breaks your heart again when he uh, when he bites the bullet or well two knives. We'll get into that in a second. But yeah, well, what was the, what was the moment that he found out that Dewey was going to die in this one? Well, I remember William Matt. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, the produce, our producer William Sherrick actually reached out before the script was submitted to David. He reached out to David's reps and and, and just said, "Look, he, you need to know going going into the read that this is this is what's going to happen." Because we don't want it to be a surprise, right? We want we want you to be prepared. For, the one person we don't want shot yeah, by it. For, <laughs> yeah, we want you to be prepared. But we think it's really it's really beautiful, and it's a tribute, and it's a, and it's valuable in a way that the like the script can't the story kind of can't live structurally without without this moment. And it is it is as much I think as much as we could make that death like a, a its own little love letter. We we tried, you know, and and again, that was that was also on the page. There was a real, a real reverence, and I think we understood the gravity of what that moment was going to be, and and it was about making it weirdly for as brutal as it is, as as kind of like beautiful and and touching and like an honor as as you could, and and you know that was just there was a real responsibility to do that right, and we felt it uh, every every day up until that moment, and then every day in the edit, it was like okay, we just have to do this is this has got to be done. It's got to be done a really specific way. Yeah, as you say, that is an especially brutal death. It's a knife in the front. It's a knife in the back at the same time. Was that sending him out in a blaze of glory, or was that partly saying to the audience, "He he's dead, dead"? Because Dewey has been stabbed. I think in maybe every film so far, and yeah. he alludes oh, to that yeah. in the film. I've been stabbed nine <laughs> times. Uh, but was this a way of saying to the audience? This is not your regular Dewey stabbing in a screen movie. This is him really gone for good. Yeah, it had, I, you know, it served a few purposes. I think part of it was it had to be, you know, brutal in a way that Scream always has been, where it, it feels fun and safe and like a comfort movie. And then when you really pay attention, you're like, oh, this is shocking. This is, this is really outside of the bounds. And, you know, for Dewey, it felt like he had to get like a hero's death in a way. You know, it's right. One of the things, you know, David mentioned this when we were shooting. He's like, he's, he always thought of Dewey as someone who imagined himself as Clint Eastwood. Like he's, he's obviously not Clint Eastwood, but he thinks he's Clint Eastwood. <laughs> and so I think one of the things we really want to do, and this was baked into the script the guy and Jamie wrote, is we wanted to kind of give him that like heroic Clint Eastwood death of like, you're really getting it. And then also, yes, to let the audience know, this is where y'all playing for keeps. He's not coming back. And we thought the two knives, the shot of the close up of the coroner's bag did it we still had friends be like but like is he really dead (laughs) (laughs) he's gonna pop up out of that bag any moment now (laughs) which i mean after he survives the attack in screen two i feel like that's a valid uh, you know a valid question for sure but yeah (laughs) obviously you said it this is as it was in in the script that you guys uh, got for the film but i i'm intrigued by the fact um that because of the timing of dewey's death um, we don't get any scenes between Sydney and Dewey. Was that ever something that you were kind of wary of, that you don't have a sequence where all three legacy characters are together because you get some lovely scenes of, again, beautiful and funny and heartbreaking scenes of, of Gail and Dewey together, and then we get Gail and Sydney after Dewey's death, but nothing of, of all three of them? Yeah, we thought that that was a really... We actually thought it was a really beautiful and, and heartbreaking thread that that guy and Jamie had found in the, in that, you know, the relationship between those three that, that, um, you know, they, they have gone their separate ways, right? Life, life has really changed for them. The last, 
four movies, the experience they've lived, they've all kind of dealt with it in a really specific and really different way. And that, you know, people who love each other can lose touch and that it can be hard to kind of, you know, build, build those bridges back once they've, once they've crumbled. And we think it's, it's sort of beautiful and tragic that he gets this really heartfelt phone call with Sid. Right. And, and they are so themselves in that phone call, right. They're talking about the past. They're talking about the present though. Dewey is clearly sort of holding back that his life is not turned out the way that he, that he hoped it would, but that they really, in so many ways, those 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 connections are are about you know reminiscence and and about like the good old days and and how they kind of turned dark and we just thought it was a really beautiful stroke by by Guy and Jamie to to give us really consequential moments with them sort of separate of each other but to never really bring them back together that they're never going to ultimately have the reunion that I think you you want them to have I mean. There's even that shot before Dewey gets in the car to drive to the hospital where he sees Gail doing the news broadcast. And you just hope we had a moment where there was there was a cut where she turned and sort of locked eyes with him. And that was the moment that he decides, all right, I have to help. Like, I'm not a coward. I'm going to get in the car. But in the edit, we were like, it's just it's so much more heartbreaking if (laughs) you can tell he's feeling that but that she doesn't get that moment because Dewey doesn't know he's walking to his death. Right. Again, like Matt said, he thinks he's, he's going, he's going to sort of fulfill this, this heroic duty, which he ultimately, he ultimately does in a, in a, you know, really sort of, there's a tragic outcome, but we just loved that they were all kind of ships passing in this movie. We thought that was a really interesting way to handle that dynamic. Mm. And he gets that one little moment at the end, you know, when he sees her face on the phone call and it's just like, for us, when we were in the oh. edit, you're like, "Oh my god, just fuck, stop!" <laughs> she did, yeah, that she did reach out, like that there was another yeah, conversation that there was like to be that had. Hint of hope, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, it's heartbreaking stuff. Heartbreaking Fucking monsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you bastards. Um, but I, so I want to talk about the the new characters and especially one of the big surprises for me, uh, the opening sequence. I think you did an incredible job with it. Uh, but the fact that Tara survives that sequence. How, what did it feel like to yeah. direct an opening sequence of a screen movie where the character actually makes it? I mean, it was it was it was great because we still got to do all the fun stuff that you get to do in the opening of a scream sequence and then we lucked out because we cast jenna ortega who's one of the most incredible actors alive she's just insane and i think for uh, if it luckily guy and jamie that was baked in that was the first major subversion of the movie right is we're gonna have them opening the opening kill not be a kill and then uh so for us it was like when we read the script it immediately gets your hooks in you because you're like, oh, I don't know what to expect. Yeah. The exact same way Killing Drew in the original got its hooks in all of us. And and then casting Jenna and watching Jenna really bring it to life. And then on a very personal level, just us knowing, oh, good, she's going to survive. <laughs> Hopefully she'll <laughs> yeah. be in more. It's not done. She is her wildly, with her is not done. Yeah. Wildly underutilized in this. Uh, you know, I mean, we joked about it with her on set a lot that this was the Tara origin story. <laughs> Because she spends most of the movie in a hospital. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, it was really exciting and it was fun because we got to do all the, the stuff we love about the opening, but, you know, we got to do something a little different. And I think that was, you know, part of the thing the guy and Jamie just baked in from, from the get go. Yeah. I, I would add too that I think the thing that was so interesting about the read and then the edit, because I think there was certainly a little bit of worry that the second you realize Tara survived, you're like, oh, Ghostface is like not 
not as not as strong and as scary and as brutal as you sort of expect him to be. And it isn't until you you really get to the end that you go, oh, every subversion that this movie is going to do is by design, right? Like Ghostface, it wants her to survive, to get Sam to come back, which gets Richie back. Like it's all it's all part of a plan, which we loved the idea. There was so much, we had so much fun talking about how crazy the, the, the set pieces and stuff could be because our killers were trying to design something that is outlandish, outlandish and crazy, right? They're trying to design the most insane version of the movie that they would want to see. And, 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 and also all of those manipulations that the script is doing, it's what the characters within the script, within the movie are doing in order to, you know, to, to spin out this, this crazy, this crazy caper. It's, it's weirdly not an homage to scream. It's an homage to stab within the movie. Yeah. Right. Cause it's, it's Amber and <laughs> so Richie doing their version of Heather Graham is what the actual story. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the layers in it are, are mind boggling. I have tons of questions yeah. to ask about the stab stuff <laughs> yeah, and about well, Richie <laughs> and that reveal. Um, but I want to briefly just talk about Sam because uh, the, the connection to Billy, to Billy Loomis that you get through Sam is really interesting. Again, I think one of the things that you guys have done is made a really good requel <laughs> as just as Scream was a great slasher film that also pokes at slasher tropes. You're poking at requel tropes. But the fact that, that Sam has this connection to Billy Loomis is, a, again, a really interesting way into this character. Can you talk about that moment when you realized there was going to be that connection back to Billy? Um, and I'm going to ask you about Skeet Ulrich as well. Like, how, Did he return? Did you do de-aging stuff? Was that purely CGI? Tell me about that as well. Yeah, I mean Billy was in the draft, right? Yeah. He was that that he appears he appears as as her this this sort of, you know, devil on her shoulder in the script and I think for us it was like it it was so exciting because we knew in the moment it was like, oh this is right, but we also knew it was a crazy risk. And again, I like what's a screen movie if it's not going to take take some crazy swings, but I think we just loved the idea that a movie that is about legacy that it's it's that it's it's one legacy sort of passing the baton to another and that everything is kind of folding back to the past that we have a character who's also running from her own from her own fucked up legacy right and she's trying to figure out what she wants to be outside of this thing that has probably defined her for the majority for the majority of her life just in the way that you know Wes and Kevin defined these the previous four movies for the run of of, of their life there was a, again, there was this sort of meta aspect to it that just felt really, really interesting and, and, and really like it was just a part of the kind of complete thought, the complete package of what this, this movie was, was trying to do conceptually. And yeah, I mean, Skeet, I, was, yeah. Skeet was just, uh, you know, he, he was incredible. He came out, he shot on our last day of shooting. We, we basically had a day with him to just do all those things and uh, all the, uh, we did all that on green screen and then just comped it in. But but Melissa was there with us. So they were, they were really performing the scenes. And, um, and then we also shot a bunch of crime, crime scene photos in the house that we were going to use on the screen when Mindy is describing, the, when she discovers the requel of it all. We were going to have crime scene photos. So we had Billy, you know, we had Skeet dressed up as Billy with bullet holes lying down like this. I mean, very, again, surreal, meta upon meta, just mind-blowing. You know, and it was really, it was really special to us because part of this whole process has been, you know, outside of the movie, it's been meeting and talking to and learning from all of the people who were involved in the original movies. And 
you know, Skeet was, is one of those people, obviously. And so to have him be a part of this and to share his stories and kind of bring that energy along with everybody else who was involved to this movie just felt really special, you know? And it, it, I don't think that's lost on us in any way. Mm. And so I, I want to talk about the, the the reveal of the killers. Let's get on to Richie and Amber. Um, I have to say, I thought, uh, well, both excellent in the film, but Jack Quaid cracked me up throughout. Uh, and when he kicks into yeah. a, a whole new gear in the final reel, <laughs> um, his fanboy rage is fully unleashed. That that um, line he has, I think it's, how can fandom be toxic? It comes from love. <laughs> um, how did you feel getting to play into that and that being really what, what the heart of, of this Scream movie is and what it's kind of commenting on? I mean, we loved it. We, we, we loved when we first, you know, so much of this goes back to that first time we read this script and our reaction and making sure that we like remembered what we loved about it when we first read it. And it really didn't change much. It changed for like production reasons and all that kind of stuff. But like the story was the story. And we loved it because it's something we feel very, we have strong opinions on because we are a part of it. You know, I mean, one of the things we say is like that it's, we're not on a soapbox. We're like in the conversation. This is, we are part of the fandom. Like we get it. We are fans remaking or, you know, making a new scream movie while the villains in the scream movie are remaking a new stab movie. It's it's because <laughs> we kept joking. We're like, we're like Richie and Amber, except we're not murdering people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but the toxic fandom thing, you know, it's that scene, that whole kitchen scene was, 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 it was a lot because just on a, on a technical scale, it was hard. And I remember, you know, one of the, one of the things that happened on set is that Nev kept telling us from her experience on this, she's like, you guys have too much. There's too much here. It was very talky. And I would say that it was at least a third longer, right, Tyler? Oh, Not I think twice as long. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there was I think a lot. We maybe in cut there. it in half. That sounds yeah. about right. So, so, so much of the edit was us fine tuning it to to get exactly. I think we had two jobs. We had to get exactly the information you need to really sell what are they doing and what is this motivation and why we had to sell the backstory of how they met and all that. So you're not just left wondering, but then we also had to really capture the vibe that you're expecting in like that scene where they're in the kitchen and they're going to kill, you know, in the original, obviously it's Nev, but here it's, you know, and I think there was a lot of kind of work that went into that. But at the end of the day, making sure that it always revolved around that idea of this is Richie's moment. This is Amber's moment. And they are explaining to us what they are doing and why they are doing it is that was the foundation that we kept coming back to. And believe it or not, we had a, we, the toxic fandom line was not in the cut for, uh, there was at least a couple weeks. And then I think it kind of dawned on us. We're like, wow, if we don't actually say it, we have to, it might not land. Like let's really define it. Yeah. And make sure that it lands. And and, you know, we put it back in and, you know, you saw it. But yeah, so I mean, I, that's a long way of saying that it, it's something that's such a part of the way we consume movies now and the way that we watch movies that, that it just, you know, when we read it, when Guy and Jamie wrote it and we read it, it just felt right. It felt like the thing that this needs to be about, you know, and, you know, hopefully that's successful on some level. I mean the the Ryan Johnson reference cracked me up. Um, <laughs> the whole stab eight thing. Obviously, yeah. well, I'm wearing a Last Jedi sweatshirt at the moment. Yeah. I'm a huge fan. There Love the Last Jedi, but Likewise. obviously that being the eighth Star Wars film and this being stab eight, and obviously they, they call him the Knives Out guy. He just did a Who Done It. Um, d- did Ryan know that you'd referenced him in the film? Did you guys reach out to him at all? 
Yeah, we did. You know, uh, Jamie Jamie knows knows him. I think kind of peripherally and reached out to him. I had conversations with his his producing partner. We were trying for a while to actually get him to shoot something with him. We wanted to do a like press junket shoot for Stab Eight, where he was talking about you know sort of soliloquizing on all of the choices he made and and ultimately <laughs> just couldn't make it happen because he was he was off shooting you know the the Knives Out sequel. But right. yes, we, he was, he was aware of, you know, what, what the aim was. And, and look, I think that that's, you know, the last Jedi was a real, is a real kind of moment in, in, I think fan, fan culture and certainly just in, in a very beloved franchise, right. It, it, it took risks and that, that I think we, Matt, I don't want to speak for you, but I think we'd say like, we, we love those risks. Like, yeah. We, and we, and we also understand why people, why people responded the way they did, but what's so interesting about that specific moment is, is how it got amplified and how it became this like bizarrely cannibalistic thing where the people who were, I think originally there to celebrate something ended up kind of burning, burning the house down uh, around them. And, and that was, that just was such a fascinating texture. And we knew we had to kind of ground, ground that larger idea, the kind of abstract idea of toxic fandom that, that is obviously at work in the movie with an example and and I and he is this the sort of ripest example of that, right? That that movie specifically, and and I think it's something that you know we will kind of continue to to post mortem on when once once <laughs> as fandom evolves. But it's a really that was just such a fascinating thing for us to all you know watch certain and and participate into a certain extent, and it felt like such a fun texture to have in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I had wondered who directed the stab sequences in this because I, I part of me wondered, oh, did did Ryan do that? Because obviously, in previous <laughs> Scream movies, I think Robert Rodriguez did direct the stab sequences from those old Scream movies. But w was this you guys? Did you shoot the stab movie uh, sequences in this one, or did you get someone else to do it? Yeah, that was us. That was we we did it in like what happened there. Like yeah, yeah, we did not have a lot. Fun <laughs> though, they were like it was always like doesn't need to be well produced like as as sort of run and gun and schlocky and quick as as we can do it it, it was it was one of those moments where it felt like oh this is we're back in the like the indie filmmaking way of doing something you know just run over grab a camera stuff. i mean the ghost face the ghost face flamethrower ghost face as we call him chrome ghost face was that was literally a joke when we were sitting around with guy and jamie and we were talking about how ridiculous that age should be and we we're like yeah and he's got a flamethrower now <laughs> and we all laughed that it would never be and no sleeves either. he's in no a, he's in a tank top <laughs> yeah it was like our like chuck norris like but uh yeah and you know fast forward as soon as we got the chance to get a flamethrower out in wilmington we did <laughs> fact, the, the ghost of the ghost of chrome face of flamethrower ghost face is matt lillard the that shit is lit that's his that's that's a, a matt lillard voice cameo <laughs> really amazing yeah. <laughs> and I, I love that moment because you've got obviously the stab eight stuff but then the, the stab one moment and, and when you have that playing in the house at the end that is another little signal to the audience of that house and the house that we're in yes. right now because you hold on to the reveal for quite a while that the party that we're at that this finale is back at Stu Maka's house um can you talk about holding on to to that moment because we, we were in that house for maybe i don't know 15 20 minutes before uh, <laughs> it, it actually explicitly mentioned that that is Stu's house that was our naivete on some level <laughs> in our in our in our grand vision super fans would get it right away of course mm -hmm. but your average 
person who maybe saw Scream when it came out and maybe once since wouldn't probably recognize that house, you know, and so we wanted to save it. And I, you know, as soon as we got into marketing and it, it was all about Stu's house that we knew that that had, that was no longer an option. Um, but you know, one of the fun things just to throw it out before I forget is that talking about the stab stuff and the stab stuff that was playing in the house. One of the things that I think was a kind of a late discovery, but it's really fun. If you listen closely, when after Jack goes into the basement and Jasmine, Mindy turns on the back on the show after the whole Randy thing, what you're hearing, because we, we basically just took it from scream. The audio is the Gale and Dewey walk into the, you know, the forest where they find the car and it's like their first kind of flirtation. Oh, we're we're yeah. a thing now, like the beginning of Gale and Dewey is we know and love them for the rest of the series. And to be able to have a kind of callback within the movie to that shortly after the end of their relationship for good, because Dewey's dead, obviously, just felt really special. And it felt like another version of this thing that we keep talking about where the movie has to like be aware of everything that came before it, be a love letter, but also like, let's go forward. Mm. I'm aware my time is nearly up. So I want to go into a bit of a speed round because I have a few things still to, to get through. Uh, we have that little Easter egg that Kirby survived Scream 4. Uh, did you chat to Hayden Panettiere about that? Was there ever a plan for her to show up in this film in any other capacity? Yeah, we had conversations with her, you know, a, a hoping that we would find some way to to fold her into this. And I, I mean, obviously, she loves she loves Kirby as much as the fans, as much as the fans love that character. Uh, but yeah, she was she was aware and, and very and very very excited. And I think just honestly, I I think I imagine probably happy to have the debate <laughs> put to rest <laughs> once and for all. <laughs> uh, something that Dylan Minette. Um, mentioned in an interview recently was that uh, you guys handed out fake scripts. People were given false endings. You have to do what you do to protect the ending. Uh, what were the false endings that were given out? What were the alternate endings that were in those scripts? They were mostly just different characters. It was kind of flopping characters. So you wouldn't know who the killers were. The story was mostly the same. I think they did some minor tweaks, but for the most part, it was just who are the killers changing. And was it somebody's job? Did you just change the names on the scripts, or did Guy and Jamie did it? I I don't think we ever actually read those scripts, right? We just asked them for them, and they did it and sent them to us, and we're like, "Great, here you go." Like, yeah, they were like, it was like fifteen pages. It was like from page ninety till the end of the script was just the names were changed for those two characters. I think it was, it was Liv and Mindy in the. In yeah, I, th- the I know, I know it was. Yeah, I think it was Liv and Mindy. So I think Liv like shoots Amber. And then, you know, Mindy runs down with Jack, or with uh, Sam, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just want to, again, speed round, but did you guys have a very specific plan of, of who was Ghostface at, at which point? Obviously, you've got the two killers. I imagine at the beginning with Tara, that's that's Liv as Ghostface. Uh, Amber. Vince is... Th- Amber. Yeah. Amber, so sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, that's me. fine. There's also a strong debate to be made that there could be both of them at the opening, just like in the original. Yes, one of them on the phone because you've got the cloned phone in in, in that exactly as well. There's, and there could be somebody. Yeah, the, there's a there's a strong debate to be made for possibly both of them. No, but I think it was really fun. I think the roadmap that we ultimately created was that Amber is fucking, <laughs> <laughs> and that yeah. and that Richie, for as much as maybe the plan is Richie's, Amber's Amber's like the heavy. She's the one yeah. who's gonna like get her hands dirty and is maybe like. I mean, they're both sociopathic at the end of the day but that amber amber has like a bloodlust 
that that maybe even Richie is a little bit kind of un, un, uneasy about. It's also that Amber kind of like, she like, you know, she leads from behind. It's like, I, we joked about like Amber probably like inception this idea to Richie, saw it through and she plays it like, it, Richie thinks it's his thing, you know, which feeds into that, the Richie that is revealed in the last 15 minutes of the movie, we were just like, oh, you're the worst of the worst. You think the whole world's about you. You think everything just is your, yours to do what you want with. When in our minds, we were like, yeah, Amber probably gave him these ideas to begin with. Like these aren't, even these <laughs> shitty ideas aren't his. Like, um, Yeah, because when I have my list of, of who I think maybe did each one, Amber's name comes up a, a it's lot. mostly um, Amber. <laughs> she, she had to be the one who killed Dewey because obviously Richie's in the lift. Um, I have- Oh, uh, and fun, quick fun fact. Uh, in the scene where Mindy is on the couch and Ghostface <laughs> comes up behind her, that is actually Jack Quaid in the Ghostface costume. Is it? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. And Incredible. Skeet was in the other room, and that is also the scene in the original. That's the only one where he was in Ghostface, correct? Yes, correct. He's behind Jamie Kennedy. That was the only time he was in Ghostface. And he was literally there on set while Jack was doing the exact same thing in our movie. So... <laughs> that's amazing well guys it's been such fun uh talking about the film congratulations you've done an incredible job with it it's a, an absolute blast i have tons more that we could talk about uh but i have to let you go for now so thank you so much okay, for let's your time. circle back sometime ben thank you so much i i would love that i would love that cool right, thank you so time. much guys thanks see ya Okay, so that was Matt bettinelli Alpin and Tyler Gillette, the directors of the brand new Scream. And before we get into the movie properly, folks, I would like us all to observe a minute's silence, please, for the, the tragic loss of one Dwight Dewey Riley, former sheriff of Woodsboro. Why did he get out of the lift? Ben, what the fuck? Ben, 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 Ben. <laughs> Sorry. A fucking minute silence, please, Sorry. for Dewey. He deserves it. Radio silence for Dewey. Apparently not. Minutes. Jesus Christ. <laughs> but why, Dewey? Why did you get lift? Why would you do that, Dewey? What the hell? Oh, Lord. Okay, listen. First things first. I do not want to fall into the trap laid by this movie and become one of those psychotic fanboys who is far too attached to the past to let go of it. And I realise also that stasis is bad for storytelling and that people need to grow and change and they need to live and die and consequences need to have actions and all that sort of stuff. And I realise that people can't live forever. And that's totally fine. But come on! Dewey is fucking great! He had his own theme tune! He didn't deserve that! What's going on? Where do you stand on that, everybody? Man, once <laughs> once he turned up, oh. you know, looking like a sad sack, living in a in a trailer, you know. I can so identify. Well, I mean, yes, but you know, you instantly were like, oh no, he's a goner. He's a goner. That in the rules of movie making, his life is a low ebb. Therefore, all he can do now is go out in a blaze of glory. There's no way back. There is a way back. No, he can, no he can back. fight. He can no. fight. He can kill a ghost face. He doesn't kill a ghost face. It's just rubbish. No Come way on. back. Nothing. He is arguably the best character in the Scream franchise, and he mm. deserved better, I would say. I agree. It's the requel rules, though, isn't it? You've got to make this one count, Chris. I felt like it was all part of the, the metatextual fun. And I, I don't know, there's an element of... He has been stabbed, I think, in every Scream movie, basically. He's a 50 cent of the Scream movies. He's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he basically has a sign saying, stab me here, I haven't been stabbed here yet. Um, 
And this time he had one in the front and in the back. Oof. It was a real, real visceral kill for Dewey. But yeah, I, I felt like they've all been stabbed so many times or shot or injured in some way that the kind of classic trio of Dewey and Sydney and Gale that to an extent they they have always kind of felt a bit invincible and it did to me feel like it upped the stakes a bit to have Dewey actually die in this one as upsetting as it was and as much as I was screaming inside where the fuck are you getting out of that lift I know you have to confirm the kill you have to shoot in the head but don't get that close don't don't look at your phone get the business done and then look at your phone yeah it was it was unexpected but also kind of expected and i feel like that's the fun total (laughs) balance that this film really leans into it's giving you what you expect and what you don't expect all at the same time i knew that whenever they announced a fifth scream and they announced the return of the whole the holy trinity of scream if you will that it was a good good possibility that at least one of them wouldn't be walking away from this movie I knew in my heart of hearts it would probably be Dewey, but at the same time, it it felt like I was watching a family member being gutted, <laughs> viscerally gutted in front of me. I I had a real hard time with this. I do not want this podcast to become a repetition, therapy session, a, a therapy session, but also a replica of our No Time to Die spoiler special, where we spent the first hour with you guys talking me off a ledge about a certain plot development in that movie. And I don't want that to happen here as well. But I I just I just need to talk it out with you guys. I just need to talk it out. And talk it through and get you know, my feelings about Dewey because I was I was not happy. I was not happy. And I was I was in a bit of a funk for I'd say a good 35 to 40, maybe even 50 days or so after the movie. And, and it's a real problem for me. Mike, where where do you stand on Dewey? I mean, you can stand anywhere in Dewey now. The fucker's dead. He doesn't oh, care. Oh, too He's soon. Bit, yeah, too soon, Chris. I I, I mean, I was sad. But I think it was a great decision, to be honest. Like, I I agree it's the rules of the recall. I'm very much of that Ryan Johnson school of like, let's kill our oldies. We're starting something new, you know, and this really felt like that. It was the let's kill off Han Solo in The Force Awakens moment, right? Let's get, like, it's time to move on. And uh, I think it had to be Dewey, didn't it? It had to be. I think it was great. I I, I, I also, I loved that it it kind of felt like the stakes were higher in this because people could die. And wow. the the problem I have with the Scream sequels, two, three, and four, is that they they teetered too far into sort of wacky comedies and they, they kind of lost their edge. They lost their teeth. You know, this was the franchise that started by really gruesomely murdering Drew Barrymore, the, the film's biggest star. And it needed to do something like that to, to get the stakes back, to get its teeth back. So I, I loved it. I thought it was a great decision. We, I mean, we still did have somebody surviving multiple stab wounds at the at the beginning of this film. So we still have the and kind end. of the improbable, well, yes, indeed. So we still have the, the sort of improbable, you know, Dewey-like survival, I suppose. <laughs> the pincushion um, of this movie. Yeah, yeah but, yeah. but I, I do feel like, you know, again, I'm, you're, it's one of those ones where you're just shouting at the screen, okay, yes, don't get out of the lift, but also don't get far out of the lift. Start shooting from there, you know, keep keep your distance. I mean, you can shoot something from 10 feet away, I'm pretty sure. And, you know, if you're a trained marksman, I think you've got a good chance of hitting them in the body. I, I if you're know, worried I... about them wearing a, a, a vest, which, mm-hmm. you know, Ghostface often has done, shoot them in the crotch. It's still going to probably disable them. <laughs> Fucking hell. Well, it's a bigger target than the head, isn't it? You know. Oh, for some of it, it is. Oh. <laughs> either, either head, then, it's fine. But, like, I'm oh, just saying, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> the, 
this is my qualm with that death though i agree with mike that i think it was a good move to do it i think it does up the stakes i think it does all the things that they say in the sort of rambling monologue at the end of this film it achieves all of that but my issue with it is compared to if we're going to compare it to the the clearest thing as you say is han solo in force awakens i feel like the dramatic tension of that scene it needs the proximity of those two characters it needs to be a moment of connection of proximity of like personal physical connection i'm here i'm reaching out to you i will redeem you i am here for you which then makes the betrayal even greater but i think spoilers for force awakens spoilers for it's been seven <laughs> years people Has um, it seven years i know i know oh, no. I've, I've, oh, so the old. passage of time is the real villain that would be in a uh, an elevated emotional <laughs> horror not in a stab movie um i was using air quotes all the way there by the way that is what takes dewey down because 25 30 year old dewey would not have succumbed to quite frankly a, a ghost face who has been shot several times admittedly with with a with a bulletproof vest but that is amber who kills him yeah and you have to ask would amber have had the physical fortitude necessary to overpower dewey in his pomp she I was mean, scrappy wasn't she she was scrappy. <laughs> she was, she was uh, pugnacious as uh, as i discussed with um with matt and tyler they were like she is the real psycho here if you, if you talk about the classic scream dynamic when you have the two killers there's usually like the mastermind and then like the crazy the one who's who's like just swept up in it all and obviously the romance uh, of the whole thing <laughs> yeah, jack quaid <laughs> is the one who has the, the 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 mastermind idea behind it all but in amber he gets somebody who she is just fucking nuts and she loves the killings um and she is the one who when you sort of tot up the list of who must have done most of the murders she yeah. far and away has done more of them and uh Did you ask very stabby that? ones at that we Did yeah we sort of got into it uh towards the end i wanted to do a kill by kill thing but we were running out of time we touched on a couple of specific ones because you were talking about people's cats ben that was the people needed to know <laughs> about the cats but <laughs> it does feel like it must have probably been amber most of the time because doesn't richie spend most of the film in the hospital with his girlfriend and her sister like just sort of sat yeah sat there watching youtube clips and stuff like i think it's mo- it must mostly be amber yeah mostly her and and then that means that when early on when sam gets chased by ghostface in the hospital that presumably has to be Richie. Yeah. Um, and there's various bits in the house at the end that's Richie. In fact, they did say in the interview when Mindy is watching Stab on the TV and going, look behind you, look behind you. And behind her is the Ghostface killer. That not only is definitely Richie, but that is Jack Quaid in the costume. Nice. The, like the one time in the film that he actually put on the Ghostface costume to, to kind of play that part. That scene in Scream 1 in 1996, it was the only time that they let Matthew Lillard wear the costume when he was doing the look behind you and coming up behind Jamie Kennedy. So a nerdy throwback, I suppose, there. I mean, isn't Amber a little bit short to have been in the costume all that time? Like, she seems a bit petite to have been... I mean, honestly, but like more so because Luke Skywalker seemed about the same height, frankly, as the Stormtroopers. If you kind of, <laughs> if you draw a line, right, from Obi-Wan meeting Jango Fett mm-hmm. to Obi-Wan standing next to Luke, to Luke mm-hmm. and his Stormtrooper, they look about level to me. But anyway. It's almost like Obi-Wan's height changes over the years as well. I don't really know true. what to ascribe that to. Yeah. Uh, uh, but Stormtroopers are tall enough to bang their heads on doors. So They are. Yeah, that's... But then they're wearing armor, you know. Anyway, look, I feel like we might be getting a tiny bit off topic, but I do feel like Amber is a bit shorter than any of the killers I actually saw in the movie. Yes. That, Not that's to pick a, holes, but I do. Yeah. 
yeah, we'll, we'll maybe get into that uh, in a second as well about the killers and their motivations and, and all that jazz. But there's just a couple of extra things about Dewey I want to talk about. One, while we're talking about the, the Star Wars parallels and you know, The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, this does commit the same mistake, I would say, as The Force Awakens in that it doesn't get the Holy Trinity together at any point. I would dispute that that's a mistake in Star Wars, but I don't want to sidetrack this conversation. I was just waiting for that. I was waiting for Ben to jump in. But I I did wonder, uh, in fact, because I reviewed this for Empire and uh, one of the things that I said in that review was, I'm kind of intrigued to see how long-term fans respond to what they do with the legacy characters, not just killing off Dewey, but the fact that, yeah, they never get all three of them together. You have the phone call between Dewey and Sydney towards the beginning, and then you have lots of stuff of Sydney and Gale towards the end, and a little bit of Gale and Dewey together in the middle, but you don't get anything of all three of them together, which does feel like a shame. But I do think that what that does, again, in terms of the requel rules is bring all those characters back and give them something proper to do, but it does mean that actually the focus of your film is on the new characters. And I do think this film actually does that really well. And I can think of other recent requels, maybe involving ghosts and and busting them, that doesn't quite get that balance right for me in terms of how much it's about introducing you to these new characters and how much it's about bringing back familiar faces. The other thing about not having the original three together is it makes them more rational because, you know, Dewey's first thought is call Sydney and warn her. Sydney's reaction is very, very sensibly, yeah, fuck no, I won't be anywhere nearby. See (laughs) you, bye. 100% sensible. It makes sense that it would take something earth-shaking and monumental to get her back to town, Um, especially now she has kids and everything to, to also look out for beyond herself. So, that that actually, from a character and a story point of view, is the exact opposite of running up the stairs from the psycho killer. That is a very, very sensible piece of storytelling. Um, but it does, of course, mean then that she doesn't have any reason to come back to town until Dewey dies. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it feels true to those characters, doesn't it? There's no fucking way that Sydney Prescott would come back to this town for any reason other than if her oldest, closest friend had been murdered. And that's the only thing that would realistically bring her back. So I think that's why they, the two of them can't exist together in, in, a, in, you know, in Woodsboro at this time. Maybe they should have had a Zoom with all three of them, you know. Yeah. You know, yeah. Ghost faces. Oh, ghost faces in the waiting room. Few admit. <laughs> um these are very, very good points. And uh, once again, you're talking me off the ledge. This is, this is, this is good stuff. Two very, very quick points about this. Uh, from a storytelling point of view, and Ben, I don't know whether you talked to Matt and Tyler about this, but did they discuss at any point, and this is hypothetical, did they discuss at any point wrong food in the audience and doing something that they haven't done in a screen movie before, which is have Dewey actually successfully kill a ghost face? Because I thought there was, whenever we close the lift door, there's a 90% chance the second that that door closes, there's a 90% chance you're going, oh, no, 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 please don't kill Dewey. But, you know, it's going to happen. It feels inevitable. But then I thought, well, this is a film about anticipation and doing meta moments and it's where we know where it's going to go. But what we haven't done before in this franchise is kill one of the two killers halfway through and have the other killer go on the back foot and suddenly have to... Un, you know, have watching all their their great, well laid plans spiral and unravel, and I wonder if that maybe that might have been a way to go if he actually had put a bullet in Amber's head and they gone, oh my god, the ghost face killing is dead, and then obviously surprise, surprise, Richie has to um 
go around and, and do what he does. That would have been interesting, do you think? Yeah, we, we didn't really discuss that in the in the interview. We did talk about the subversion at the beginning of Tara surviving that opening attack, which has kind of never happened in a Scream movie before. Mm. But we didn't talk about that in terms of the Dewey scene. I think when you're talking about the way that it plays with audience expectations, I think even then, as much as you're like, oh, he seems to have killed this ghost face. Maybe they've, yeah, as you say, killed one of the killers halfway through the movie. That is very different. At the same time, most people who have watched Scream movies know in that zombie-like way, you have to aim for the head. You have to confirm the kill because they've done that before as well of like, oh, we've shot this killer many, many times, but they're wearing a bulletproof vest. So I think... It works on a few levels because I was watching it the first time going, oh, yeah, maybe they have killed this killer. And at the same time going, you didn't shoot them in the head. You haven't flipped up the mask, which is the first thing I would do before I even shot yes. them in the face. Mm-hmm. When they all run into the lift, but I'm like, no, look who it is. Get get the mask off. Uh, so the fact that they didn't do any of those things, I think what's fun is that you're kind of thinking as you're watching it, oh, is this happening? Isn't this happening? And then it has the chance to catch you off guard uh, with what it does next. I, I do agree, though, that actually killing one of the killers would have been really good at that point. You could have had three. You can always yeah. have three. Mm-hmm. Um, so there could still be two in the in the last scene. But um, but it wouldn't get, leave them questioning. Is there is that it? Are there is there one more? And then surprise, there's two more. You know, it could have been that could have been quite cool. Damn it. You've turned I, I, I me around. It, it 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 could have been a really fun way to subvert the formula, couldn't it? I think, and I did think that too. That if the the one sort of negative I have with this film is, I guess, it, again going back to the Force Awakens a little bit, is that it, even though it's kind of claiming to do something new, it is sort of doing beat for beat what the original yeah, does, it's and really and I kind of almost wish that it took a few more risks here and there that that it does kind of play out as a very conventional screen movie, even when it sort of teases subverting that occasionally, yeah. So does that mean the next Scream, Scream 2 slash 6? Um, I don't know what the... What, they should call it Scream on. 2. They should just call it Scream 2. <laughs> it's not confusing. Um, but does that mean the next one can be this series' Last Jedi? And the Ryan really, Johnson one. Yeah. Really shake things up. Everyone's a killer. I hope so. I really hope so. <laughs> or something. I don't know. Yeah. The last ghost face. And ghost face has a line, I will not be the last ghost face, which then gives you Scream 9. Amazing. Yeah, that would, that would be very interesting. I'm sure we'd really please the uh, the, the toxic fanboys. Uh, but screw those guys. <laughs> but I just, thought, I just thought it would be an interesting little wrinkle if they did that. Because if you look at that scene as well, if you think, if you check that scene on its merits and... What the film does is it it pitches Dewey's death. <laughs> and yes, we are 20 minutes in, still talking about Dewey's death. <laughs> but it pitches Dewey's death up to the level of the mythic, right? So everything suddenly becomes about that. There's, you know, it, it feels like the camera angles get dialed up a little bit. The music gets dialed up a little bit. You know, you have one of the keystone characters of this franchise being dispatched in a absolutely unceremonious way to leave absolutely no doubt that it, it has happened. He won't be coming back from this one because he's got bits of his skin are flapping around and, and sides mm. falling out and all sorts. So they dial it up to the, the, the status of the mythic. And in doing so, I think they take your attention away from what is happening elsewhere. So we're all focused on the left hand. We're not really thinking about what the right hand is doing. And the right hand is that Richie, who is the other killer, is in that lift with Sam and with Tara and he must be thinking at that point, is Amber, my partner, dead at this point? What am I going to do? Should I just kill these two now that I've got them in this lift with me and Dewey's over there? 
that might have been a really interesting moment to just have the whole thing completely unravel at that point and just see a ghost face improvise wildly. <laughs> a ghost yeah. face. <laughs> one, of the most, one of the most interesting movies in the series, I don't know if you guys remember Scream 4, uh, how yes. recently you've watched that one, but there's a really fun last act of that movie that does subvert the Scream rules a bit where yeah. the, the killer is revealed and then that killer sort of wins. And then it's like, what happens next after she thinks she's killed Sydney and, and all of the others and, and she's kind of wheeled off to a hospital as the hero. And then we kind of see her deal with, oh, realizing that Sydney's still alive, but no one knows she's the killer, but we know she's the killer. And this really fun kind of subversion of the normal formula in yeah. that film, which I think is really underrated. And I, yeah, it would have been fun to see this movie do something a bit different like that as well. Yeah. Last scene with, uh, with Jill at the end where she is beating herself up and, oh, and going full narrator in Fight Club is tremendous. Yeah, she yeah. chucks herself through a glass table. Screen <laughs> 4 does. is massively underrated, not it just really because is. of that reveal at the end. Emma Roberts is incredible in, in that ending reel. Going, going full but Emma Roberts. Yeah, Full so Emma good. Roberts. Um, yeah, that is such a great film. Uh, I think it's, it deserves more love than it gets. And I think the thing that's interesting with Scream 4, and we were talking just now about in Scream brackets 2022 about the fact that you don't get the classic trio back together but if you're talking about sort of legacy sequels requels that come 10 years after the previous films that bring all the old characters back and also bring in a generation of new characters mm -hmm. scream 4 was mm -hmm. a requel yeah. before requels were a thing we kind of already got that version of that film i think that's yeah. also why i don't mind necessarily that you don't get all three of those classic characters back together in this one because we had a whole film of that of them back together and in woodsboro trying to solve another ghost face killing with a set of teens in scream 4 10 years ago and i, I do think it's to this film's credit that it doesn't feel like a retread of Scream 4 while also basically doing the thing that Scream 4 yeah. invented before everyone else was doing it. Yeah, th um, that film, I remember being a bit underwhelmed when I saw it, but I watched it again just before watching this and it has aged magnificently. It feels mu even more relevant now, I think, than it did when it was made. I think, um, it, yeah, I think it was too ahead of its mm -hmm. time almost. Like it was a big flop, wasn't it? And, um, and that was the sort of nail in the coffin of the Scream franchise at the time. But it was almost like it was too yeah. early. It was, it wasn't quite late enough for Scream Nostalgia, but it was it, it was too late that it kind of felt a bit passe at the same time. Like it was kind of in this weird in-between phase, I think. All of the social media stuff, all of the like celebrity for the sake of being a celebrity just through sharing your life on screen, I think felt kind of silly and over the top when Scream 4 came out and then quickly became extremely true in a way that Wes Craven is definitely some kind of um, soothsayer, him and Kevin Williamson. Yeah. Um, so I think that stuff's aged really well. I, I, I tweeted the other day, put Scream 4 on a back-to-back -back screening with the bling ring, that would make an incredible double yes. date. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I like how your brain works, Ben. Uh, and Scream 4 also does, I think Scream, this one, <laughs> this Scream, Scream 5, 5 Cream. 5 okay. Cream does, I think, what Scream 4 did also, which is, as Ben said, it brings in the legacy characters, gives them something to do, although I'd say the focus is more on them in Scream 4 than it is here, and actually has memorable characters that you want to 
stick around. Jill, for all her psychotic uh, nature, is uh, an interesting character. And of course, there's Kirby, uh, who uh, the Hayden Panettiere character, who is revealed to be alive in this movie. And I was very, very happy about that. Mm-hmm. I noticed that when I was watching the movie and I was like, oh, this is a little thumbnail. She's alive. Because she didn't deserve what happened to her at all. Yeah, justice for Kirby. <laughs> justice for Kirby, damn straight. I do actually think the characters in this one are also really good. And and maybe in some ways a little bit a little bit more three-dimensional than those characters in Screen 4, which were all awesome, but kind of a little bit like they're very sort of archetypal. And I, I quite like that these characters had a bit to them. You kind of felt like they'd known each other for a few years. You know, their the, the relationship with uh, Tara and Tara's older sister and that kind of history there between them all. I really liked it. I liked that we had Randy's niece and nephew as the twins that kind of fulfilled the Randy role. And like, you know, all of them were kind of linked to previous characters from previous entries as well, which was really cool. I thought that really worked because you fully believe that Woodsboro would be the sort of town that people grow up in and kind of never leave. So the fact that the descendants of all these people who have been involved especially in the first film because obviously the the two and three take place away from Woodsboro four goes Mm. back to Woodsboro Um, the people in those families would still be living in Woodsboro despite all the shit that's gone down I thought that was really believable and as you say Mike I really bought into the Sam and Tara stuff I thought that was great and this does again I said to Matt and to Tyler, uh, what you've done is, like with Scream, where it's poking fun at slasher tropes while also being a really good slasher, I think they made a really good requel because it gives you new characters to really care about. You spend a long time with Sam and Tara before you even see any of your legacy characters. And when you have that sequence where they're in the hospital together and Sam is telling Tara about um, the fact that her dad is um, Billy Loomis, unveiling that truth and all of the things that happened, why she ran away from home, what all of that situation was. And then the way Tara responds where she's like, I've just been fucking stabbed loads of times. And now you're, you've come back out of nowhere after six years and you're dropping all this shit on me. And how am I supposed to deal with that? All of that stuff felt actually really earned and real to me. I thought that relationship felt very genuine and very strong. And it's not until after that that it's like, okay, now let's start bringing the band back together. Let's go and see Dewey. So you get probably about half an hour, I think, before you even get to those old characters, which for me is what you need to do with this kind of film. Yeah. If you're going to establish the new ones and give us any chance of caring about them enough to bother having established them in the first place, then you need to spend that kind of time with them. You know, you need to actually lavish some care and attention on them. And I think they've done that. I think it's also like, it's a very good cast of of young actors. God, I sound like a granny. They're very nice young people. (laughs) These youngsters. Um, but you know, but you've got you've got people who have been kind of eye catching in other things and who have done good work. Do you know what I mean? Like Dylan Minnette um, and Mason Gooding were both really good in, well, things. Alexander in the terrible, the horrible, no good, very bad day. Uh, in Dylan Minnette's case, and uh, Booksmart is the one I know your other man from. Uh, but like Melissa Barrera is is phenomenal as the lead. You know, really, really likable and really charismatic. Is this about to become an In the Heights spoiler special? I'm always ready for that. Always ready. It's about to become an Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Uh, or maybe Wes and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day is perhaps more apt. But it's a very, very good point. So, for example, whenever Ghostface is stalking Wes, even though we haven't really spent that much time with him, you like that character and you don't want him to die. Same with the twins. I think the twins might actually low-key be the best characters in this movie that aren't Dewey. And (laughs) and you don't want what looks like happened to them to have happened to them. And uh, luckily they've been reprieved. I don't know whether it was 
test screening audiences or, or whatever who reprieved him in the way that Dewey was reprieved in the first movie by test screening mm. audiences. But uh, but yeah. Yeah, I think you care about all of them. And actually that, that was the balance that the first screen got really well as well. This idea of it kind of it taking away that slasher trope of the 80s of a string of kind of two-dimensionally drawn teenagers we don't care about watching them die in grisly ways and Wes Craven making it kind of a little bit more no actually you you should feel for these kids you should feel something when you watch Drew Barrymore die and try and scream out to her parents and can't and all that kind of thing and I feel like this film kind of tapped into that again it's genuinely quite upsetting I think when that character of Wes is is being stalked and his mum is dead on the porch and he's putting out all of the cutlery for their little dinner together and everything like it's it's a good kind of tense moment yeah and he never finds out as well yeah so yeah I think they, they did a really good job with that not only is that brilliantly horrible, but at the same time, it's really fun in that you're the, the way the Fuck amount of time. <laughs> no, but th- this is why these films are so fun, right? And I think what what Matt and Tyler do really well is you then have like it feels like at least two minutes of just following Wes around the kitchen and them doing all the tricks of oh he's opened a cupboard door and now he's closing the cupboard door and now he's opening the fridge and who's going to be behind the fridge oh it's nothing it's nothing it's nothing and making you wait making you wait longer making you wait building that up I thought for a while they were going to just literally keep doing that they were yep. going to just keep going and keep going and keep going and then move away and then hit you with something which mm. they sort of do but they, they make you wait a long time but that is the stuff that's really fun that's the stuff where the audience is in dialogue with the film the film is saying to you you know what we're doing and we know you know what we're doing and we're going to just keep playing with you and toying with you and dangling this in front of your face uh, long enough that you might think that actually something's not going to happen. So I I think all the way through, all the sort of just nuts and bolts horror stuff is generally done very well. I've seen some people say that this film isn't scary. And I, to be honest, I don't think any of the Scream films are in that like, ah, I'm properly genuinely terrified. I think what this one does well and Scream 4 does well and the original does well is it's less scary and more like properly brutal so that when you have a ghost face killing, you really feel the impact of that. I think you feel the viscerality in the first film. In Scream 4, I think it really amps up the violence. So you're feeling the 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 visceral thrill or the visceral horror of somebody being slowly stabbed through the forehead. And in this one as well, the killings are so brutal and gruesome that that is what gives you that kind of scared feeling. But beyond that, I don't find any of these films properly like jump out of your seats, like can't sleep at night, scary scary how did you guys find the the fear factor in this one i always think they're quite high with this but because you identify with the characters it's it's that simple i go back to things like scream 2 where sydney's in the the crashed car with ghostface and she has to clamber over him while we think he may or may not be unconscious i think it's him at that point i think it's the elephant killer it's not it's not mrs loomis at that point and a spoiler for Scream 2. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I, those moments are terrifying. And, and anything in Scream 2 towards the end, you know, because of what happens to Randy oh, in Scream 2, which is, I think, one of the greatest kills in the history of horror movies. I mean, that is, talk about you don't see something coming. And it, it's so out of left field. And it's so brilliantly done. And again, it's like a it's like a knife to your metaphorical heart because you love that character so much. Because you love these characters, because you connect with 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 Sydney and Gail and Dewey and Randy, anytime they're in jeopardy, I'm on tenterhooks. 
And, and likewise here, and likewise, likewise, because they establish so quickly how likable these other characters are. And frankly, slasher movies are almost a little bit more relatable than <laughs> demon possession movies in that, you know, it's entirely possible that a person with a mask and a knife could be behind me right now. Although I think I'd hear them if they were on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These, what if, these ghost what face if the, killers are very chatty, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> what if the other one's on the phone? There is that. And that's what I thought was happening in the opening sequence but there, there are also moments when Ghostface is right behind him and it, like you're wearing DMs size 10 DMs <laughs> and a big swishy cloak you'd make noise it's a very soft material, I think. I think that's the only thing you, you can come across. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of similar, I think. I, I find them scary because you care about the characters and because the kills are gruesome. And there is that, you know, sort of combination of jump scares and slow creep where you know something's coming and you just don't know what. Yeah. They're, they're probably less overall terrifying haunt your dreams than some of the supernatural stuff, which really gets me. Not supernatural with a capital S, supernatural with a small S. Although season one, pretty scary. Um, <laughs> it's more, the, those are the kind of things that I have nightmares about. Like uh, I'm still not over 28 days later, probably never will be. <laughs> there are Stephen King stories that still haunt my dreams. I will never Shawshank. be entirely, <laughs> I will never be entirely okay with, with knowing that the stand definitely won't happen. I mean, it could like, yeah, you know, the last year, not that far. Close. Um, yeah. So that those get me more in a way, but, but this I thought was really effective. I was scared while I was watching it. Yeah. yeah I think uh, we've, we, you know, we've been in like such a sort of, golden age of horror these last few years as well I think and the, the film obviously kind of talks about it these movies like Hereditary and oh the Babadook that are all genuinely not just scary but sort of you just want to go and sort of sit alone in a dark room after you've watched something like Hereditary and uh, they are dark. genuinely they, yeah they, they're genuinely like emotionally traumatic as well as terrifying um, and yeah. this has a slightly more kind of fun it's got it's a slightly different kind of horror tone, isn't it? I think, but a really yeah. fun one. But I think this movie does do a good job of balancing scares with laughs and and thrills and all the other things that the original screen movie did have because of the brutality of it all. I, you know, it's 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 the movie that reminds you of being stabbed with a ten inch knife would not be fun, yeah, and uh, an ultra sharp ten inch knife at that. And so it it's why maybe some of the people who survive viciously being stabbed would maybe stretch the limits of of disbelief possibly but i also like the fact that yeah it does mention these these elevated horror movies that you know are are really ordeals to sit through you're absolutely right after i saw hereditary i had to on the on the drive home i had to stick my head out the window just to get some fresh air (laughs) too Too soon soon. way too soon I didn't have a point. I just wanted to make that joke. Uh, anyway, but but the elevated horror thing is interesting because of the ghost of Billy Loomis. And I say ghost of Billy Loomis. It's a it's a vision of Billy Loomis that that, that Sam is having because she's you know she's got mental health issues. But I did think at one point that it might have been going in that direction. That it might have been making a point about elevated horror becoming like the new in thing in horror movies, and that it might have manifested itself as a ghost of some kind. And there's still a suggestion that there might be something living on within Sam, some sort of spark of Loomis psychosis there, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I think they had to walk very, very carefully, you know, in that sense. And I think they they pretty much did. But, you know, we've had a lot of films in the past and frankly in the present that have linked schizophrenia and similar diseases to 
violence and to, you know, this kind of gore. And the fact is that people with mental illness are far more likely to be the victims of such violence than they are to be the perpetrators of it. But we have this idea absolutely reinforced by movies that mental illness can equal, or at least not necessarily, but can equal this kind of violence. And I think this film actually kind of undermines that trope and sort of reverses it and says, it's almost a superpower here that she has. There's almost you know, this this voice in her head, if you like, or this vision or whatever you want to call him, ends up being a help um, in this life-threatening situation and not a hindrance. And that is almost kind of maybe progressive, almost, I think. <laughs> well, also just being like a fun kick-ass moment yeah. while you're watching yeah. the film, because when she turns the tables, when she introduces the new rule, never fuck with the daughter of a serial killer, and she I mean, goes ham on that guy. She absolutely... We're talking about pincushions. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was pretty nuts. I felt sorry for him. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. I, I Poor do guy. wonder if it would harm her defence of self-defence. You know, I feel like uh, I had to kill him, Your Honour, I had to I had to stab him, you know, seventy eight times. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a Chicago. He ran into my knife. He ran, he ran into, into my, my knife, knife yeah. ten a lot times. Of times. <laughs> ten times. Damn yeah. it! Damn it! He, he, I mean, he, but that's a lot of times to run into a knife, you know. So I, I feel like I think. Look, the police chief in that town is very much going to be on her side and very much going to be in favour of putting Ghostface away because beloved sheriff has now the last two sheriffs, as far as we know, have now been killed by Ghostface. But even so, I kind of feel like in a disinterested legal system, she would have trouble making that case. I'm just saying. Yeah. None of the ghost faces have ever survived, right? Because I'd like to see Ghostface on the stand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there were rumours. Uh, were there some rumours of Jill maybe coming back, even to surviving being defibrillated in the head and then shot? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and, well, and, and Stu as well, who had a Stu. TV dropped on his head in the first film and sort of frazzled uh, because of that. But then there was no real kind of official confirmation. In, in the world where ghost faces need real proper, like, Mike Myers level... <laughs> Michael Myers, should I say? Sorry to, to Mike Myers. <laughs> Michael Myers levels of like confirm the kill, stab, 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 chop the head, shoot the head, all the removing of the head stuff um, is necessary for these ghost faces pretty much. Uh, and Stu did not get that. So there were rumours of him coming back. But yeah, wasn't meant to I- I was a little bit of me was hoping the whole way through that we might see Matthew Lillard pop up because he's been yeah. he's been sort of doing the rounds recently. He's been doing a lot of press for the Scream anniversary and all this other stuff and and with with Ski Ulrich and and the fact that Ski Ulrich came back in some form in this movie. So I was kind of waiting for us to see because they mentioned Stu a lot throughout the they film did. as well. And obviously the whole last act of the film takes place in his house as well. So there was this. I just kind of there was a little bit of me that thought is the second. Kid are going to turn out to be Stu, re- like reanimated in some way from uh, from that first film, which would have been I, great. But yeah, he might he might still have technically been alive. And I guess Helen, you would know as a as a former barista, <laughs> if if you killed some people in 1996, would you be out now, or would you still be in prison? Oh, I'm not sure. It depends on your state um, in the states because some North of them Carolina do have here, right? Is North Carolina? That's that feels to me, and I'd have to look it up. And I I stand here to be corrected on anyone who knows better. But that feels like it might be one of the life means life states. 
Uh-oh. Yeah. So um, Sorry, I Stu. Yeah. Can't swear to it in French. <laughs> Damn it. Bad news, pal. <laughs> you may want to sit down for this one. What is it? <laughs> I also, I really like, I think the, the the bringing back young, you know, the sort of CGI young Ski Ulrich mm-hmm. thing, de-aged, worked okay for this because sometimes I'm not a fan of that. And uh, they did it recently, spoiler alert, for Halloween, didn't they, where they brought back Donald Pleasance, which was horrible. I didn't really... And uh, I think... <laughs> Um, Donald unpleasant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was really, it was really weird and not very nice. But I, I feel like they get away with it in this one because he's not supposed to look real. He is a sort of vision of his daughter who's never actually seen him before. She's never met her dad. She knows of him from pictures or, you know, stab movie recreations with Luke Wilson or whatever. So, oh you know, God. I think it kind of worked that he would look a bit uncanny in those moments. Yeah. True. We need to talk about the stab movies and how <laughs> those are just, I mean... They just ride roughshod over actual killings that have happened, and they they recreate those killings w- with sort of grim gusto, and everyone's cheering this thing that actually happened in real life. And oh, they turn them into into oh, it's crazy, crazy, crazy. <laughs> it's fucked up. And also, there's like so stab one was based on Scream one, stab two was based on what happened in Scream two. Then I think stab three was a fictional film that they made in the world of Scream and then presumably Stab 4 went back to being based on real life and I think at this point we're up to Stab 8, eight right? Yes. Directed yeah. by Ryan yeah. Johnson that was just called Stab that didn't have the number which I thought was funny um, which fans I love hated. The, but there yeah. is the, the throwaway line, I think it's in 4 rather than this one about was it Stab 5 having time travel? So you <laughs> yeah. know there, there has been a sort of Jason in space kind of you know, what was the Leprechaun one that went crazy as well? Yeah, so they've gone they've gone that sci-fi route in the stab franchise as well yeah maybe that's a way of bringing Dewey back if they go sci-fi <laughs> in Scream 6 part 2 or Scream 2 part 6 or Scream I don't know what the fuck it's called anyway. uh, but whatever the next one is bring Dewey back Scream kills safe. Scream ends that's what yes. I um, uh, so let's talk about some specific things we have some listener questions as well um, which we'll, we'll run through but we should talk about that opening scene because the opening scene is always such a huge moment in a Scream film you know that pretty much whoever you see first is going to peg it I was worried it was going to be one of the Holy Trinity it wasn't it was Tara. But then, as you say, correctly, Rugpool, subversion, she doesn't die. What do you think of that opening scene? I think it's a very clever opening scene because it's doing many things at once. Obviously, it's homaging the opening of Scream with Drew Barrymore. It's also, in-universe, recreating the opening scene of Stab, which is what these killers are trying to do. In not killing Tara... They spark the whole plot, which means that then Sam comes back to Woodsboro. So it seems to be intentional, as as brutal as uh, what they do to Tara is, that Tara doesn't die is all part of the plan. Uh, so that is kind of smart as well. And the other thing it's doing is presumably most people seeing this film, or a lot of people seeing this film, will have seen Scream or maybe seen all of the Scream movies. But if you've not, it's also kind of giving you exposition because of the quiz that Ghostface is giving about what happened in Stab is basically telling the audience what happened in Scream so that yes. when it pays that stuff off later in Scream brackets 2022 
you're already primed or you've been reminded of what happened in Scream brackets 1996 because of what happened in Stab. <laughs> it's the layers of it are crazy. Stab brackets 19 whenever. 1998, I think. So it, it's doing all kinds of things at once. It's good. And it is, I mean, the one thing I, I, I was thinking about, you know, the fact that obviously they've not called it Scream 5, they just called it Scream, blah, blah, blah. Would this work for people that have never seen the Scream movies? I don't know if it would. Like it, even though it does give you a bit of exposition to sort of get you up to speed, I feel like hmm. it's still very much Scream 5, isn't it? It is just another sequel. It doesn't feel like it It could, re. It, it's a reboot in the in the way that people who've never seen any of the Scream movies could completely get what's going on, I think. Because yeah. all of yeah. that in-world stuff about the Stab movies and it, like that's very confusing, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I feel like you, you have to have at least a clue about the Scream movies. You don't necessarily have to have seen all five last week. But no. I think, you know, apart from anything else, the way that this movie introduces the characters, you might assume that Dewey is the main character in Scream and not Sydney from the way they're introduced, from the order, from the, initially from the importance they're given. So it, you know, I think if you don't have a clue of that context already, you are going to lose some stuff. And also a lot of the meta stuff is obviously going to go right over your head, which would be a shame. At the same time though, I think it does other things to lay bits of groundwork as well, that if you haven't seen any of these films, you still have that conversation between Sam and Richie in the car when they're driving to Woodsboro, where she's like, oh, what, you've never seen a stab movie? It's based on all the killings in Woodsboro, where we're going now, and it was this person and that person, and this is what happened. And then you have various moments then of him catching up on the films and commenting on them to go, oh, okay, so this is kind of where the stab franchise is up to and him even just making those jokes of like oh yeah it really goes off the rails after the first couple which then sets up when he's at the end they're going stab eight was shit and i want to make a good one it, it, i think it surprisingly lays a lot of its own groundwork that maybe to an extent goes over our heads because we know all that stuff already but i think it does do it gives you enough for somebody coming in totally cold the stuff mm. within this film makes sense you just get a lot more out of it having seen the other screen movies i mean the the how can a fandom be toxic thing <laughs> now, this may love, not, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> this may not have gotten a laugh in in normal person cinemas but in the critics screening it uh, it got a very hollow <laughs> hollow laugh at that point um yeah, uh, so I, I thought I, I thought it was brilliant. I thought the idea of introducing or reintroducing the Saw fandom that that would be a factor because it kind of was again in in Scream Four. They kind of did that already, but making that a little bit more pointed here, it allowed them to point the finger at some some new characters, uh, the twins in particular. That that sort of put the suspicion on them, making it about fandom. And I thought it was all too relatable. <laughs> that really reveal was hilarious i think jack quaid is brilliant in this film by the way even before that reveal he brings so much of the humor here lots of his line deliveries uh even just like teenagers get the fuck out when they get to the house at the end he's just really funny but he gets to deliver one of the best monologues in this film when he's talking about why he's doing what he's doing um and yeah his his uh line about toxic fandom absolutely cracked me up and it's, it's just funny because it, the film is giving you what those people want at the same time as kind of poking fun and taking the piss out of all of that so it did it did feel like it was doing what scream should do and find something that's happening at the moment or some kind of meta text on what this film is and kind of spinning that back out at the audience because i remember watching the trailers for this when it first 
dropped and going it looks like a scream movie and it's got ghost face and there are people being stabbed etc etc but i don't get what this film is or like what it's Mm. doing in that sense that every other scream movie has had a very specific point whether it was the original or two being about sequels or three being about trilogy closers about four bringing in a new generation i was like what is this one doing and when that reveal came i'm really glad they held a lot of that stuff back from the trailers because the reveal of it in the cinema was just a blast. And also yeah. Jack Quaid's so good at doing both parts of that. Like he's so good at the, you know, slightly gormless, you know, very likable, nice guy. And he's very, very good at the really chilling psycho. Like, and we've kind of seen a bit of both of those in The Boys, to be honest. But like, it, he's great, great casting for that role. So he's yeah. like early Randy Quaid for the first half of the movie and then latter Randy Quaid for the, for the second half. Of the Absolutely movie. no comment. No comment on that, probably. He, uh, the, and Ghostface, like uh, this is where Scream has always been quite ahead of the time as well and it's sort of ahead of the curve because I think Ghostface has always kind of been that toxic fanboy. That's kind of what it's always represented, hasn't it? Like even this idea of like the opening scene being like, haha, fuck you, Jason wasn't the killer in Friday the 13th, it was Mrs. Voorhees and like it, it, this idea idea that these <laughs> gatekeeping like, gatekeeping boy like pathetic fanboys basically are are using the movies they love as an excuse to kill women most of the time and that is something that's run through in Scream 2, you know, Timothy Oliphant's character wanted to, wanted to be famous and wanted to have a famous trial. And, and like, you know, Jill wanted to be a, re- a reality or YouTube star or whatever. And it's, it's, it always got something to do with kind of toxic fandom, toxic celebrity, movie fandom gone wrong, I suppose. And they did such a clever job of bringing that up to date in 2022 and name dropping things like Ryan Johnson's Last <laughs> Jedi and whatever else. And like, you know, making it so current whilst also kind of making it very much what Scream has always been. And knowing as well that by coming down so staunchly in defense of Ryan Johnson that they're going to be pissing off the very people that they are trying to piss off, but they're really going to be, they're, they're doubling down on it quite beautifully. Mm. So good. So yeah. good. One last thing I wanted to mention before we get into listener questions was, uh, weirdly enough, I don't think this has a huge body count. And if you think back about the the first movie, I don't think there's a huge body count in that one as well. A lot of people get stabbed in this, but manage to walk away from it. Your two ghost faces get killed. But I say it might be what, Four major characters bite the dust in this, maybe? There's the guy that's pissing in the alley behind the bar. Um, yeah. He feels like someone who's just been stuck in there to, to increase the body give count. Ghostface something to do. we oh, God, we got to give Ghostface something to do. Totally. There's... So- uh, there's one moment where we don't see a kill, but there's a there's a hospital paramedic or somebody who's just lying yes. dead on the floor mm. when Tara walks out into the corridor, whether we count that. And then, yeah, Wes and his mum... Is that um, it? Do it, yeah. Liv gets properly. Liv's, Liv gets shot in the head. In oh, the yeah. House. oh that's, yeah, that's the, uh, the Amber reveal. Yeah, um, that's pretty brutal. And then our two killers. Yeah, yeah. But it is. It is like relatively. It is relatively low. I think, isn't it, compared to all the sequels? Definitely. I think it's sim- more similar to the first Scream. All right. Okay. So let's take some uh, very very quick listener questions. This one comes from at Emile Enapud or Emmeline Apud. Anyway, name aside, her question is, I really enjoyed the film, but did you think the Billy Loomis ghosts were a bit much at points? I thought that was a fun way of linking it back to the first film and doing that requel thing of, hey, we're going to give you a new character, but the new character is going to be directly related to the old characters in some way. And because we all knew that Dewey and uh, Sydney and Gale were coming back to see another face from the original film, felt like a nice surprise. I didn't mind that. I quite liked it. 
Yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought also the CG was very good for this kind of thing. It's a difficult, difficult thing to do. You're, you know, walking the lip of the uncanny valley the entire time. But I thought, especially given as as we discussed, you know, the fact that he is a ghost and that allows for a little tiny bit of unreality, I thought it worked really well. Yeah. And the way that like this whole town is sort of haunted by these sort of ghosts of all these people that, you know, that there's a moment when uh, you see Randy's picture up on a mantelpiece at one point, And there's a moment when in Dewey's little trailer, you see a little shrine to his sister Tatum played by Rose McGowan. And uh, obviously we're in Stu's house. So there's like everywhere are these little memories of these characters from the first one. So it, it kind of felt like it worked. When did you realize that we were in the, the house? took me an embarrassingly long time. Me too. <laughs> I, think I kind of clocked it. And I think what's nice is that when you have Mindy watching Stab, you can sort of see it's the same room, but it's arranged in a different way. The furniture's arranged in a different way. So there are things that as you're watching it and seeing, oh, there's a there's a basement that is very much like the basement in that other film um, and where that basement is in relation to the living room, it feels familiar, but it, it, it did take me a while. And probably until they said, you're in Stumacher's house. And I was like, I, I thought that was the <laughs> case but i wasn't certain until now i think i think i got it when she goes oh my god look where they are or something you know when she sort of shows gail that was like oh it's the same house but literally again missed all of the clues beforehand in in our defense many homes are built on the same floor plans you know like these Mm. cookie cutter houses we can't be expected to spot it Here's a good one from at Pity the Back Seat. And Ben, you may know this already. You may have talked to Matt and Tyler about it. I'm not sure. And Mike, as the Hello Sydney guy, you may know this also, but see if you do. Did you spot the voice cameos of the original cast, i.e. Drew Barrymore, Matthew Lillard and Jamie Kennedy? I did not know. No, I think I knew about the Matthew Lillard one, although I've already forgotten where that is now. But I... I knew that there was a small Matthew Lillard voice cameo in there, but I didn't know about the other two. That's very cool. So Pity the Backseat then filled me in because I went, yes, of course, and then went, no, I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea. So she says, the whole For Wes speech was ADR looped by previous cast and crew members of the Scream franchise. So Matthew Lillard says, this shit's lit. Uh, and nice house, Freeman. Jamie Kennedy says someone's goofy dad is kicking us out, and Drew Barrymore is the voice of the high school principal at the beginning. Ah. Oh, I love it! Yay, yeah, that's really on. lovely. And I, I know, I know, it was cheesy and on the nose, but that whole for Wes to Wes thing, I thought was just a, a nice little nod because it does feel like I think what they've done a really good job with this film in making it of a piece with the other Scream movies, making it a good Scream movie in its own right, but very much saying, hey, this is this is all about Wes. This is what, what Wes taught us, but also this is what Wes might have done. Um, so I thought all of that tipping of the hat was, was really sweet. I think there is a real sweetness to all these films. There is a warmth to those characters and to that world, despite all the slashings and the blood and all of that stuff. So it felt nice that they gave that props, gave that tribute to Wes Craven in those moments. I've I've just been looking for spoilers online to learn more about that because I didn't spot it either. And I had not picked up on the reference to Mark as Sydney. I mean, I had picked up on the reference to Mark as Sydney's husband. I had not connected that to Patrick Dempsey's character in Scream 3. Detective Kincaid. Yeah, there was chemistry there. I When I was re-watching all these films, I actually couldn't remember who the killer in Scream 3 was. So I was watching it thinking... It's the detective, isn't it? It's that guy. He's shifty as hell. It's, it's uh, McDreamy or McSteamy or... McDreamy, I believe. Yeah. McDreamy. McStabby. McKilly. Um, McStabby. 
vibes. So yeah, but there is there is some nice chemistry between him and and Sydney in that film. So I, it was just a very small nod, but a, a nice connection to have made. Yeah, where was McDreamy when Dewey was bleeding out on the floor? He could have saved him. He was looking after the kids. Damn it. I mean, that's responsible. At drummer Tom UK, in the opening scene, Amber is texting Tara and she says, you should answer this. This is not Amber, but it is, in fact, Amber. And she's in the ghost face costume and the live video of Amber is just pre-recorded video. Is that correct? So when I was talking to the directors about this, they I don't know if they came down on one thing specifically or the other, but they said it is open to interpretation that maybe both of the killers are actually there in that moment and that you've got all these extra opportunities because of the cloned phone. So it could be Richie filming Amber through the window in the bedroom but with another phone that's that's been cloned, so she's texting as Amber, and then... Richie seemed to have a fairly watertight alibi, because he was with Sam, or at least in the vicinity of Sam, at the time, and he's miles away. Yeah, I think... He, I don't know if he, they say he was with her, or just, we assume, he was for, too far away. They drive for, let's say, hours together. But the question is, would he want to miss Ghostface's first kill? That's a good point. I wouldn't. I, w- I want to be there. Wow. Also, it's not a kill. So, I mean, they true, fuck it up true. monumentally. Maybe he doesn't yeah. care then. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Here's a question from Matt Mabs underscore A84. During Dewey's death scene, oh no, it feels fairly implausible that physically Dewey would struggle against a tiny framed Amber. Do you think there's a third killer? Dun, 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 dun. Matthew Lillard. Stu. <laughs> yes. It's Matthew Lillard. Stu he was a big imposing man. Yeah. It's feel a little woozy here. <laughs> Psych scoop. <laughs> that line delivery in the first film is wild. It's crazy. It's like all the words sort of slur into one. I know he's been stabbed at that point, but it's uh, it's amazing. So um, good. Again, for me, it comes down to the fact that that it's sort of fate that Dewey is going to go out that way. Also, Amber is an absolute psychopath and is all hopped up on adrenaline at that point. So I, I do buy that death, to be honest. And, and we've seen that Dewey is not in a good place. That was one of the upsetting things. I think it's really interesting and valid and valuable when they give you, hey, we bring the legacy characters back and um, we give them some real dramatic weight to chew. I felt heartbroken that that Gale and Dewey hadn't worked out that that had, mm. that they had split up and it was sad to see him living in his little trailer drinking and watching Gale on the TV was really upsetting because that character has been the fun funny character for this whole trilogy or for, for the previous four films and I did miss as much as we got some nice like spark between him and Gale when they came back together in a bit of that repartee they got to do the fun stuff basically while Sydney had to be tortured um, by all the things that were going on so it felt a little bit of a shame to bring those characters back and have Dewey be in such a bad place yeah. um, in this film I also think it was David Arquette's best performance in the series as well mm-hmm. actually which made it sting even more in a way but like he's always been really good but he's been like you said Ben he's been like the broad comedy character a lot of the time slightly goofy and he really got to do some interesting stuff in this one. And even those little moments when he's on the phone to Gail or to Sydney, and he's kind of holding back from sort of losing it, you know, and I think he was really good, um, quite moving in this. Yeah. Yeah. And just a heartbreaking little, little sort of grace notes that, you know, he watches Gail every single day on her show. Yeah. And he's trying to keep in touch with her in that way. And he still has everyone's numbers and speed dial and, oh. That little um, smiley emoji he sends in the text yeah. when he texts Gail. Oh, no. Oh. Oh, 
we're, we're back where we started with me <laughs> weeping over Dewey. I do want to say on the on this sort of Dewey hospital kill scene, the other thing that's really great in that scene and is one of my favourite things in the film is what they do with Tara. So when she gets herself out of bed and into the wheelchair, the the horrible, horrible sound effects of like all of her stitches and stuff kind of creaking and opening as she's really slowly inching her way around the hospital, that felt like often in a film like this, in a slasher film, somebody gets stabbed and then there's a whole set piece at the hospital and maybe they're like a bit slower than they normally would be, but somebody who's just had surgery is like legging it around and kicking back against the killer and Tara in that wheelchair, the slow creak of the wheelchair, all the sounds of those wounds and the bandages and her like groaning and weeping and all of that stuff was really, really visceral. That was something I, I think it just amped up the tension so much that you know that if Ghostface comes for her she is actually in a really really helpless position here um, and it just really sort of gave you the after effects of her stabbing earlier in the film that she's in she's in bits she's barely being held together and the, the effort that she's having to use to try and push herself slowly around the hospital really churned my stomach mm. not today yes oh today. oh and that uh, it's an honor as Ghostface. Oh, fuck you, Ghostface! Oh, he's a, he, <laughs> she, right. they are the worst. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I'm going to call out Ghostface right now. I'm sorry, you're, somebody you're bullshit. Has to do it. Fine, your bullshit <laughs> won't wash anymore. They should just discontinue those Ghostface voice changes. Why are they still making those? <laughs> yeah. That's the problem. Yeah, or that's the, the problem. At least you stop making knives. <laughs> if you want to cut your food, use your teeth. If she'd had to chew Dewey to death, it would have taken ages. Oh, wow. it's, it's, oh, it's, a, it's a sequel to Raw now. Yeah, <laughs> that is elevated Ooh. horror. Oh, <laughs> lovely bit of Raw, Dewey. Oh, my word. Oh, um, no. oh no! Another question from Mabs is: uh, they want us to rank the screen movies. We we did this. Me and Helen did this mm. on the uh, Ben. Were you in that one? One I can't remember. I don't think no, so. No, I don't think I was. And I have, I have thoughts. So we we did the f- we very very quick ranking of of the five screams, and I went two one <gasps> four. Five three. I would go one, two, five, four, four, then a gap, three. <laughs> then a long gap. I'd be exactly three. the same as Helen. Yeah. One, two, five, four, three. I'd possibly be one, four, five, two, three. Get the <gasps> fuck out. Two, two, no, two is really good. But one of my They're all of such good standard other than three, right? aren't they? That's the this is the thing that I've loved over the last couple of weeks, right? Is everybody, I know a lot of people have realised this for a while, but the renewed conversation that people re-watching these films and going, all the Scream films are really good. Like three is the weakest one, but it is also funny and wild and mad and Parker Posey in that film is a gem. And even <laughs> though the kill stuff is not as good and the reveal at the end isn't great... The comedy stuff, the the in Hollywood stuff is really funny and playful. Like that's an interesting and funny and weird film. Four is really underrated. Two is a really, really good sequel. That opening sequence of two in the cinema is incredible. Like you say, there's other sequences like crawling over Ghostface in the car when it's crashed is really good. The CC, um, Sarah Michelle Geller sequence in that is great. So that one's really good. Obviously, the original is a classic, and this new one's really good too. There has not been a a bad scream film and it's been really nice to see people kind of talking about that and realizing that on social media over the last couple of weeks with this one coming out fully agree but still no <laughs> far, too, far too low down far too low down come on come on man what are you doing although sometimes i wonder if i remember too so fondly because of randy's death scene 
which yeah. probably back in 1997, so when it because it came out very quickly, didn't it? Scream Two, yeah. was it 1997 or 98? I think it was 97. 97, yeah. And that would have done to me then what Dewey did to me now. Anyway, at Chris Tom eighty oh five, is it explained how Richie and Amber find out about Sam's parentage prior to starting their killing spree? If not, do we assume Amber's reference to being obsessed with the Stab movies after moving into Stu's old house was a driving force for her to research Stu and Billy? Or could it possibly be assumed that Sam and Tara's drunken mum let slip once, perhaps? Yeah, I think she dug around in in Sam and Tara's house and found something. Isn't that sort of laid out a little bit? Isn't there something about a going in the attic and finding stuff? Sam, I think she, yeah. Sam found all that stuff, didn't she? And that was yeah, how she but, found out about it. But, but I but felt yeah. like... And, and, I mean, she just said people talk, right? But I think... I think she probably... Yeah, she says, oh, it's a small town. Yeah. yeah. Ben, do you have any, any answers to this? Haven't spoken to Matt and Tyler? Yeah, I don't know if there's an explanation for that. It, it's got to be around somewhere because Sam found out from the stuff in her mum's attic. So maybe there is some kind of trail of evidence, but I think that's something you sort of have to roll with. Maybe there's a better explanation. You just got to roll with the stabby punches in this one. Uh, at Richard Norris 75 says, I don't mind violent films. But I found the stabbing gore to be a bit out of step with the tone of the originals. How did you view the gore? Absolutely same as the originals. Yeah, yeah, very much Go so. back and watch the Drew Barrymore killing Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, wow. And it felt of a piece with Scream 4, which I do think is like the stabbiest, uh, bloodiest Scream film. This felt of a piece with that, where it's just kind of upped a little bit in the way that all horror films have done. But yeah, right back from the beginning, they are pretty visceral and bloody, and you feel the impact of that knife. Yeah. This one was actually, I think, even more visceral for me than 4. I think 4 had the most blood. There's there's a moment when a girl is killed in Scream 4, and it looks like that Johnny Depp Nightmare on Elm Street scene, like her bedroom is like covered in blood like buckets of blood and uh, this one I think had less blood but it was stabbier and you really felt it I think in a lot of the moments in this movie it was really visceral and gross yeah yeah yeah. we haven't really talked about we talked a bit about Wes's death but that the knife going slowly into his neck was oh, oh no no thank you and um, Tara at the beginning gets her like leg broken or snapped or something doesn't she in the kitchen and then she puts her hand out to protect herself and the the knife goes through the hand and it had a lot of like grisly moments like that which I loved we haven't even (laughs) <laughs> we love we're all sick oh, we love it, it. Yeah. we love scary movies uh, <laughs> do you like scary movies I do I love them <laughs> oh, I love them Whoa. Uh, anyway Marley Shelton her death Judy Hicks mm. oh that's fucking brutal that's horrible yeah, rushing home to save well. your son oh, not good no. Not good. Although I do question the response time of the Woodsboro Police Department. So many questions about their response time. Absolutely. I mean, especially if their actual sheriff is calling them. Maybe there have yes. been budget cuts, you know? I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe she's the sheriff's department and she's calling herself. Oh, it's like, yeah. She's her own backup. Oh, no. As they say oh, no. as well, like various members of the force are at the hospital looking after Tara because there's that other police guy that Sam's quite rightfully mm. like, why aren't you with my sister right now? And he's like, oh, because mm. we got called here. I would like to say as well, I really enjoy the way Ghostface says, Sheriff Judy. 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 That's good. That's actually a question from Matt Stephen Lally. Is that Ghostface's greatest opening statement? Hello, Sheriff Judy. <laughs> Judy. Uh, it is good. It's a good one. Did the, team, did the team, which is us, I think, uh, guess the killer slash Urz. Did you have any of them marked down? I guessed Richie. 
mm. 100%, but not Amber. Uh, at the moment when Richie got his arm slashed in the hospital, but he wasn't killed, he got his arm slashed and he just got kind of knocked out. I was like, oh, he's he's one of the killers. But, but I, I didn't, I, again, in my head canon, it was, it was Matthew Lillard and him. <laughs> I didn't guess Amber. <laughs> I, I talked myself in and out of Richie so many times. Like the second he appeared on screen, I was like, he's the killer. Not, not even like mm. waiting for any defensive wounds or anything like that. I just thought he's the killer. They're, they're doing the love interest thing. Then they call attention to the love interest thing. Then they make him, oh, oh I don't know anything about these stab movies. Oh, what is that? Which seemed a bit obvious. So it's got to be him. Then they take him out of physical harm's way. So oh, maybe it's not him. But then the second he disappeared down the basement to get beer, I was like, that's him. It's him. Yeah, I think he's... going in the basement was the big red flag, actually, wasn't it? Yeah. I think. Because um, why would you do that? I think I even leaned across to you and went, why would he go and get beer? Why? No beer what is worth fuck? it, man. No <laughs> beer. I mean, we're saying this is non-drinkers, but no beer seems to be worth it. Um, I'm just thinking about the earlier question about Amber knowing their mum is in an AA group. So presumably she's talked about this kind of stuff in AA. So it, it would make sense if, if, let's say, Richie had gone along to some meetings, tried to spy on her there something like that. There's lots of ways she could have found out, but certainly she would have talked about it in group and people might not have obeyed the anonymous bit of Al-Anon. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Amber, I didn't get, I'll be honest. Uh, but yeah. she's the one character I didn't connect with. I don't think we knew enough about her. I don't think we got to spend that much time with her. And she was obviously sinister looking, you know, there's yeah. a reason they, they cast her in as one of the Manson family in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like she is, she, there's something just offbeat and, you know, like respect, like cool about that actress, but also just a little bit like, you're not an average small town person that I trust here. Totally. And I think that's why I wrote her off because I thought she was a bit too obvious. Mm-hmm. She was a bit too like dark. And, and again, that's a really fun, I mean, like, the thing about Scream, the original, is that it is so obvious when you look at them again and you watch the film and you look at Billy and Stu and you're like, of course they're fucking serial killers. <laughs> like it's screaming at you from the start with the two of them. And she kind of has that about her from the start, actually. So yeah, it sort of works. But that's what I think about they what they do in this film in particular, but also that they've done all across the Scream franchise is given themselves license to make you second triple quadruple guess yourself and go Mm -hmm. well it's obviously this guy but then actually is that too obvious so maybe it's this guy but no actually it was that guy so i feel like you can never know who it is because even everything could be a double or a triple or quadruple bluff or it could be the quiet one who you don't expect so that's what i think is really fun about these films as much as we are on the fifth scream now and there are only so many incarnations and things they can do it also means that they've kind of done it pretty much everything so you don't know which way they're going to go it's not as obvious now I'm still not convinced with Stu and Billy if I'm honest with you I I think I've got to wait for all the evidence to be in this one it might have been Sydney it might have been Sydney it might have been Sydney all along we must wait for the independent report into what happened in Scream. It was Cotton Weary. <laughs> oh, poor yeah. Cotton Weary. Uh, one thing that the movie does do as well is, is, you know, it's so meta and it calls attention to itself and it calls attention to the rules of the prequel or the requel. Someone points out that it then kind of unironically carries out the rules of the requel. And what do we think of that? But one thing I liked about it is that it draws attention to the fact that the screen movies are different from your Friday the 13th or different from your Halloweens and your bog standard run-of-the-mill slasher in that they're murder mysteries mm. in that there's a whodunit element to them as well which makes them enormous fun trying to figure out who it is under the mask whereas we know it's Michael Myers we know it's Jason Voorhees or Mrs. Voorhees the original or you know we know it's Cropsy in the Burning <laughs> so there's no mystery about it but there is here which is half mm. the fun 
Absolutely. Last question comes from at K McNulty Muck. Should there be a new Scream trilogy now without Sydney and Gale and starring Billy Loomis's daughter? I think that if they go ahead, then I don't necessarily want to see Sydney or Gale ever again. I think that's it. Like I think that this one felt like a sort of passing of the torch, didn't it? Again, in that Force Awakens way, like it really did. It felt like that their arc has kind of come to an end now, Sid, Gale and Dewey. So I'd happily watch another one about this new group of characters, definitely. I mean, look, worst case scenario, have them on the end of a phone, but I don't particularly want them in harm's way. They've been through enough, damn it. <laughs> yeah, let them be. The thing that I think is hard is like, what would they do with another one? What is that killer idea? Because I guess they've already done the sequel thing. Would it be doing a sequel to a requel? But then if that means we get the Halloween kills of Scream, I don't think we want that because that was not good. Um, they've kind of already done the Last Jedi thing and poked fun at that. So they can't do the, hey, we've given you the one that's sort of in a fun way retreading all the original beats now we're going to give you one that's like the stuff that you weren't expecting or the stuff that kind of subverts a lot of things I, yeah I don't know where they go from here and it's hard I really liked those new characters I was talking before about how much I think they did a great job of establishing Sam and Tara but I don't know how if they're strong enough as characters to then hook an entire sequel just on them I don't know Maybe you do that idea that you had, Chris, years and years ago about, you know, at the end of a lot of horror films, you have one person standing who looks guilty, mm-hmm. right? You've, you like so, so many horror films, the survivor in real life would be picked up by the police and everything would be pinned on them because obviously you could potentially do something like that with Sam here. You could potentially have Sa- basically Sam in the asylum um, being tormented by a new, let's say, ghost face and trying to figure out if she can trust her own mind or not. It would be a little bit of a departure, but there's probably a way to tie that back into Scream. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe these yes. killings copyright, do... Copyright Chris Hewitt. Back <laughs> <I off. know. laughs> Maybe these killings do spawn a good stab nine, and then it's like a mix of Scream 2 and 3, where it's about the fact that they're making another film, and then it's set within the stab nine film i don't know but that feels like a remix of things they've they've done yeah like as much as i I love scream 2 which came directly after one but i think maybe the scream movies are at their most interesting when they have a bit of a gap like scream one to scream four to this one where they there was something new in the culture and in the zeitgeist to talk about you know and a bit of time had passed um so yeah maybe maybe they maybe it's worth waiting a while although i'm sure they won't (laughs) because i mean yeah otherwise they could do the elevated horror version of scream i guess (laughs) that's what i thought they were gonna do i genuinely thought they were gonna do that and then they didn't but yeah listen all the talk of ryan johnson leads me to think that the next Scream should absolutely be a Knives Out crossover. Uh, oh, Benoit Blanc yes. investigating Ghostface would be amazing. Unless, of course, he answered the phone in the beginning. <laughs> oh, a conversation between Benoit Blanc and oh, Ghostface on the other end would be incredible. If, if Benoit Blanc was Ghostface, it'd be a pretty dead <laughs> giveaway. I do, do you like movers? <laughs> what did you just say? Do you like scare movers? Benoit, is that you? <laughs> Damn it. I suspect foul play. <laughs> What's your favorite scare mover? Uh, anyway, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> 
on that note, that is it for our five cream spoiler special. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> all that remains now for me to say is thank you to my three colleagues of such lethal cutting. Uh, squad cast names, Mike Myers Munzer. Goodbye. It is goodbye from the Knives Out guy, Ben Travis. In every sense, I'm a Knives Out guy. Um, <laughs> oh, no. I still prefer the Babadook. <gasps> that, that line is amazing. Yes, indeed. Goodbye. Uh, it is goodbye from You've Got Gale, except <laughs> you don't in this case, no, Helen O'Hara. Sorry, it's just me. Toodaloo. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me, the life and death of Riley. Oh, no. Poor old Dewey. We hardly knew ye. Apart from all those movies you're in. Such a shame. Anyway, I'm off to update Ryan Johnson's IMDb page with Knives Out 2, Scream 6. <laughs> Do you like scare movies? Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. That was Ghostface during Belmont. <laughs> that was lovely. <laughs> <laughs>